Hello, this is the Born Together podcast. I'm Techie Quay, the human behind this project. I'm a doula, podcaster, and mother to young Ava. This podcast is a modern archive of motherhood and lived experiences, building a community and sharing in the journey of motherhood. Thanks for tuning in and happy listening. In today's episode, I speak with Emily, who shares her story of motherhood and how it was impacted by endometriosis that rendered her unable to naturally conceive. We focus a lot on Emily's journey with endometriosis and conception through IVF. We also touch on her breastfeeding journey and how it was impacted by several different factors. I'm sure you will come away with a richer understanding on all these subjects. I know I did. Enjoy today's show and thanks for tuning in. Hello, Emily. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hi. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here and chat with you. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and your family to kick off? Um, yeah, sure. So my name's Emily. My partner is called Christian. Um, my daughter is Fox and she has just turned two and it's just, just us. Yeah. And where are you guys? We're over in Lincolnshire probably been here about 12 years now we like being out in the uh, in the country I am a bit of a country bumpkin I think um and we've got three dogs and two cats as well so I mean we would have more if, if we could <laughs> a little menagerie <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah we we like to be out out in the country and I do like to get home I try well before lockdown um I would try and get back to Shropshire sort of once a month to visit my family, my sisters over there and my niece and my mum. So I do, we try and get back there with Fox and to catch up with family quite a lot. But obviously we haven't been able to do that now. So it's a bit strange. feel a bit stranded. (laughs) Yeah, a bit isolated. But what was your life like before becoming pregnant? It was a very long journey. Do you want to take us back a little bit and fill us in? Yeah, of course. So before becoming a mum... Christian and I probably oh you know we went out for dinner all the time and had lots of holidays and lots of bits and pieces like that we um I think we're quite outdoorsy people we'd like I say we've got dogs we used to have four we've now got three but we'd always be taking them places for walk stuff like that and we're quite active as a couple we both like snowboarding Christian rides motorbikes and things like that so we've always had a lot going on and then obviously becoming a mum sort of changes everything doesn't it changes all that all that everything slows down quite a lot maybe not so much snowboarding and getting on your bike <laughs> with the baby yeah <laughs> not yet no but yeah it was it was a bit of a journey if you like for want of a better word to get to where we are it's a bit of a funny one because I've got endometriosis and that ultimately made me infertile so we were told rather flippantly but I'll probably explain that a bit more when I was about I think I was 26 that I wouldn't be able to have children and on my own sort of naturally if you like anyway and that's really what pushed us to I don't know if what what's the right words for it really I guess forced us into a decision to start trying I think if that that wasn't the case we wouldn't have started trying then we wouldn't have had you know we maybe wouldn't even have fox now I don't know not oh sorry I'm rambling on a little bit I don't know I can't find the right words but I know what you mean it's sort of um, forced your hand into it no that's exactly what I was trying to say I was like there's something about a hand (laughs) yeah Yeah. I think that's it it's uh, we potentially both almost felt like it forced our hand a little bit because just knowing how long it potentially could take and as it happened, it took us five years. So, you know, if we had have waited, how old am I now? 33. And my partner's 
41. So if we had have waited and then, you know, only just started trying now, it could potentially be another five years from now. And, and we'd both be much older. It harder as you get older. Exactly. Well. And there's more risk and things like that for the woman anyway. I don't suppose it matters much for the men, but for the woman, it's it's completely different, isn't it? And, and so you were 26 and told you're probably not going to be able to naturally conceive. And yeah. so what's the process then to becoming pregnant? I mean, five years is a really long time. Yeah, well, I guess it probably all started with my endometriosis. I started my periods when I was 13 and they were all right. Six months in, I started to get quite poorly every time I would be on my period and I knew it wasn't right and I knew it wasn't normal because none of my friends were as ill as I was and it was awful actually and I was obviously lived at home with my parents and family at the time. I'd get very poorly and it was like clockwork so I know with endometriosis it comes with a whole range of symptoms for, for different women and it affects different women in different ways and I also understand that the severity of the endometriosis doesn't necessarily dictate how poorly you can be. Somebody Your can symptom. have really bad endometriosis but hardly be ill at all and might not even know that they have it and other women might only have a very you know stage one endometriosis but be really extremely poorly with it so it doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with how ill you are but mine would sort of be like clockwork I would always get ill first thing in the morning it would be sort of five half five six o'clock I'd wake up and think oh my goodness I'm going to be sick and I'd have to run to the bathroom I had to be sick and seconds later I would faint and I would get really hot and really cold and I would just have the most extreme pain throughout my stomach and my back and it would just be that on repeat basically to begin with and that's when I was like well this doesn't happen to any of my friends and obviously being 13 you're so young at the time and it just got progressively worse I went my mum took me my mum would look after me she would be the one there holding my hair back as I was being sick picking me up off the floor after I'd fainted putting me back into bed (laughs) I'd ended up oh goodness I don't know how many times I'd been back to the GP too many to count and nearly every single time it was dismissed as really bad period pains have some paracetamol have a hot water bottle you'll be fine well I would be in a cycle where I would be sick I would try and take tablets and then I would be sick again so I couldn't even get painkillers into me because I was just being sick all the time so and my mum would be coming with me like no this is this isn't period pain this isn't normal there was a few times I was at work once when I was about 16 had a Saturday job and it happened to me there I started getting really poorly and ended up going to hospital in an ambulance because everybody at work rang an ambulance when you faint because that's what they do (laughs) and my mum had met me there and I got put in a room on my own and one of the nurses said oh do you think it's just a coincidence you know you might because I was being sick and you might just have a tummy bug at the same time that you're on your period and I was like this no. is every time, every time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was about 16 then. It had been happening to me for three or four years. No, it's not a coincidence. My mum's quite a fierce lady, thankfully. But a female GP suggested to my mum that I could be making it up to get time off school. And my mum, the lioness, I think, came out in my mum at that point. And How she, Yeah, yeah, it was very much like that. When I was 17... By this point, I was really quite poorly and it just got worse and worse. But I was due to be heading off to university and I had uh, fainted in the bathroom, hit my head on the sink and just generally was just not very well. And my parents paid for me to go to the private hospital locally and we'd gone there, said, this is happening. It's not normal. And the doctor was great and said, "Okay, we'll, we'll do some scans, we'll do some checks, come back on this day or whatever. 
we went back I had all the scans and again I was told I was absolutely fine I've even I've still got the letter that he wrote to me in response to the scans that I had and it actually reads Emily understands I have no miracle cure for her problem and I wish her all the best at university oh my gosh I know disgusting isn't it so off I went to university carried on being ill and then it got to a point I was 20 I was was staying overnight at my boyfriend's house at the time and I woke up first thing in the morning and I just knew I was going to be ill and I was rushing to try and get my shoes on and get up I still had my pajamas on I was like I've got to get back to my flat got to get back to my flat because I just could feel it coming on and I got to the top of the stairs at his house and I fainted and I fell headfirst down the stairs and I just had black eyes pretty sure I broke my nose I'm not sure but I just looked a mess and I rang my mum and floods of tears just like I'm so poorly this is horrendous like this cannot be my life there is something wrong with me and somebody needs to help me anyway I'd sat online googling what's wrong with me you know just desperately trying to find out and I I found some stories about some younger women with endometriosis and I sent all this stuff to my mum and I was like this is it this is what I've got it must be so we sat there on the phone for quite a while she was looking online I was looking online and we found a specialist in endometriosis he was called Dr Yemi Coker and he was based down in Essex at Brentwood at a private hospital down there and my mum was like right we'll go and see him so my parents paid for it and we went I went down there I'd been messaging his secretary to book the appointments and things and she was absolutely fabulous she was so helpful we went down there I had all the standard scans and I was just sort of rolling my eyes at my mum thinking, oh, here we go. And we went in there and I had this one scan, an ultrasound scan that I had had countless times before. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, you've got endometriosis. And and he said, see this here? And he was pointing at all these black bits on the screen. He's like this and this and this and this and this. And he was like, this is all endometriosis. And I was just like gobsmacked thinking, well, I've seen that picture no end of times before. If I knew what I was looking for, I could have told him that myself. I've seen those black dots. Yeah, I'd seen, I'd had the scan still from in my file, in my medical file. He said, right, what we're going to do, he explained everything that was going to happen in terms of treatment. I would need a surgery, this, that and the other. And he booked it in for two weeks time from that day. But I just finally had this huge sense of relief that somebody listened to me. I felt was the first time anyone had actually really listened to me and had found the problem. And I just thought, this is amazing. This is going to be amazing. And I was just, you know, really happy. You've been diagnosed with something. You know what it is. You can work with this now. Yeah. And as it happens, I now know, this was seven years later, so I was 20 at the time. But I now know as a statistic, I think, I don't know if it's a worldwide statistic or for the UK, but the average diagnosis term for women with endometriosis is seven years. So you were bang on time. It's shocking, isn't it? I just think it's absolutely shocking. But I went in for my surgery. It was laparoscopic surgery. So just three sort of small incisions. And I had that done. Um, When I woke up, he said it was I had the most extensive case of endometriosis he'd ever seen in any, in a person of my age so I was there thinking I was right I was right all along <laughs> but he was really good and we it was followed up with a Zolodex treatment plan which was injections directly into my stomach alternately the, le- the left side the right side monthly injections they were like a time release capsule thing and I also had to be put on HRT patches and tablets because of the, it, the Zolodex injections kind of send you through an early menopause so I felt pretty rough for quite a while afterwards all while I was trying to do my dissertation and my finals at university this was 
And sorry, um, I probably should just ask for the listeners who don't know what endometriosis is. I've got endometriosis and I still find I don't quite understand, but it's growth happening outside of your uterus. Is that correct? Yeah. So essentially, when you have your period, your uterus sheds the lining. You shed the lining of your womb, don't you? And that is your period coming away. Now, with endometriosis, it's almost like I guess it's almost like you shed the outside lining of your uterus as well. There is there's blood leaving where it from where it shouldn't be, and it has nowhere to go. Um, obviously, because it's just going into your abdomen, so it tends to attach itself to other things in your stomach, and this can be really painful. So it can attach itself to your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, your bowel, your bladder, like anything that's there, basically, and it causes sort of lesions and scarring and things like that so in the surgery that I had was an excision surgery where they cut away a lot of the scarring and the build-up of endometriosis that was there that was causing me pain and lasered some bits as well that they could I had it everywhere I think it was all on my ovaries everywhere stuck to my womb my bowel my bladder my uterus yeah that's what it is so the surgery was to remove what they could of that they have to be very careful because they don't want to damage any of your other organs in the process so it can be some surgeries I guess are quite short I've had 10 now in total but the flip side of that was my periods weren't so bad <laughs> so you win some you lose some I think. after seven years you're like oh I think it's worth it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was actually great I you know I had a great time um after that I was on the pill as well I didn't really have any problems then until I was about 24 I had four well I had no two and a half really good years I lived abroad I moved away a couple of times I moved around and that's when I sort of came back and ended up in Lincolnshire but when I was coming up to 23 I started getting poorly again and I could feel it all coming back because the problem is with endometriosis there's a treatment for it but there's no cure because every time you have a period you're going to be starting the build up again starting all over again yeah and so it was I could feel it getting worse and worse in me and it did it started to get quite bad just back to where I was before basically so that was a bit of a cycle I was in I got sent to Sheffield Hospital and um, just because they had a better gynecological team and unit I believe I was sent there rather than the local hospital in Lincoln and it was while I was there my mum every surgery I've had my mum's come with me she's come to stay with me and come to look after me afterwards as well <laughs> brilliant <laughs> yeah but it was while I was there, woke up from my surgery and this doctor came around. I hadn't seen her before. I'd never seen her before my surgery. I didn't even know that she was the one who'd done my surgery. And she sort of said, oh, yes, we did a dye test as well, which is where they fill your uterus with a blue dye and then watch what happens and see where it comes out. And she said, um, oh, your left fallopian tube is completely blocked and your right one has, what was the term she used? Something like a slow drip or a delayed drip or something like that because it was mostly blocked but liquid could still get through just deep through and I we just sort of said oh okay thanks for that and then um you know I'd only just woken up I wasn't really sure what was going on and she sort of wandered off and then I sat talking to my mum and then my mum was like hang on a minute what, what does this mean so we called her back yeah basically just got told well you know this is going to impact your fertility you probably won't be able to have children on your own you'll need something like IVF or what have you and I was just sort of a bit shell-shocked I think because at 26 I was absolutely not in a place where I would be ready to have had children then my partner and I were together 
been together for a few years at that point and we did live together but that's not to say we were suddenly ready to have children it hadn't been a conversation you'd started organically no we were still going on holiday and just enjoying ourselves and and yeah we wouldn't we wouldn't have been ready at that time I certainly didn't feel ready I still felt like I was 18 yeah <laughs> um, I still sometimes feel 18 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know that that's what sort of forced you then into the conversations about families and children and what happens next and so on and so forth so from there it just kind of progressed came back to our local hospital and went to see sort of what our next steps were from there to have children and they advised us that if we wanted to start the process we were better off starting it there and then because it would most likely take a while best case about 12 months normally uh, we were entitled to our first round of IVF to be funded because because it was our first round and neither of us have any other children. But there's pretty there's very strict criteria that you have to meet as well. And that's another hurdle that we faced. Just with the strict criteria, is it in relation yeah. to your body or your personal situation? Yeah, well, everything really. I mean, on paper, I think we're, we were fantastic ideal candidates for it, if you like. We... Um, both had full-time jobs and careers, cars, a house, a plentiful income between us both that that we used to go on holiday with and stuff all the time because we didn't have children to spend it on then. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, and my partner is a director in a company as well. Um, you sort of have to be so, an ideal candidate for IVF. It's not just handed yeah, out to you. Yeah, and, you know, the government stipulations is that every everybody should be allocated three free rounds of IVF but each trust I think it is is actually able to make their own decision on that and in most areas within the UK you're only actually allocated one free round of IVF even though it's recommended that you're given three they actually only dish out one other than in Scotland I believe gives three rounds of IVF to everybody Wow! and considering the the success rate of it I think that should be the case everywhere but it isn't and I just imagine the stress Um, then for it to work the first time which probably isn't conducive to you actually becoming pregnant yeah that's it so we sort of started the ball rolling it took us a while to even get accepted for it because I wasn't heavy enough because of my weight basically and my BMI now this was my a stick a real sticking point for me I've pretty much been the same weight give or take a few pounds since I was about 15 and I'm only five foot three so I'm not particularly tall and I've never really had an issue with my weight I'm very lucky that I I actually don't exercise as such I walk the dogs every day and that's about as best as it as good as it gets that and the gardening and running after a toddler now but prior to that (laughs) you've got an additional regime now I'm not um my BMI was too low to be accepted for IVF now the NHS state a healthy BMI is between 20 and 25 for IVF, your BMI can be between 19 and 30. And I was just below 19. Uh, I think I was at 18.4 or something like that. And so they wouldn't accept us for IVF for ages. And I had to keep going back and get weighed. And I was eating as much as I could. I gave up walking the dogs. My partner would walk them on his own. I was literally doing absolutely nothing other than eating. But actually, as it happened, as my weight changed and did go up a little bit, and my periods became really irregular, which is the opposite of what you want for IVF, because my body was obviously happy being the weight that it was supposed to be. But what was frustrating for me at the time was I was working it out and I could be 
nearly 14 stone and five foot three with a BMI of 30, which would actually make me really unhealthy, but they would have accepted accepted me. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I was quite active, walk the dogs, go snowboarding, quite healthy, but I was just slightly under, so they wouldn't accept us. We overcame that. I went for my final weigh-in and I drank. My GP told me to drink so much water that I felt sick because water was heavy. (laughs) (laughs) So for my final weigh-in, you know, I did and I was okay. And they sent it off and we we finally got accepted and what have you. It, It just wasn't plain sailing from there. And everybody's IVF journey is different. Everybody has their own hurdles. And we are very lucky, and I know that I'm very lucky, in that for us it did work first time. But that first time took forever because I kept having, we kept having to abandon the cycle. Something would go wrong. We'd have to abandon the cycle. I would have to go and have a surgery for something or other. And and then we would come back to it later on, start again, and then something else would happen. And it was, it just felt like that all the time, like stop, start, stop, start. Um, And was this your endometriosis coming into it again, where you had to go and take care of that before having a baby? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd had quite a bit of endometriosis build up on the back of my uterus. So one of the surgeries I had was to cut that away. They'd made a little nick in my uterus and had to stitch that back up. Now, if anything happens to your uterus like that, it's recommended that you don't get pregnant for 12 months because your uterus potentially might not be strong enough. And obviously you don't want any sort of rupture or anything like that. So that was put on hold for then. I've actually, I've got a, I've got a buildup of endometriosis that has fused part of my bowel to my back muscle wall. And so that causes me probably the most pain on a day-to-day basis. Like I don't have to be coming onto my period for that to be really painful for me. And it can tear slightly sometimes. And I describe it as like a a white, hot lightning bolt of pain through my back because I just don't have any other words for it. And I know it sounds dramatic, but it really is sometimes. And then that will be just agony for the whole rest of that day and probably a few days afterwards until it's kind of healed itself again. But the problem is I know that in it healing itself, it's probably causing more scarring, and more buildup and so on. And I've had two surgeries to try and separate that, which was with with a gynecologist and with a bowel surgeon. But they, they just can't. They can't. can't happen. No, they've, they've essentially told me that it is like if you took two pieces of paper and you glued them together and waited for it to dry and then tried to separate them. The doctor said, what would happen? And I was like, well, one of them would tear. And he's like, exactly. And the one that would tear is going to be your bowel because mm-hmm. your muscle is very strong. So essentially, I'm just left with that unless I want to have a colostomy bag, which obviously I don't. So I have to just deal with that. So I've had to, a couple of surgeries to try and separate those. Neither of them were successful. And I just sort of have to live with that now, I guess. From all of my appointments, our IVF clinic was over in Nottingham because there isn't one where we are. And I have to say they're absolutely fantastic. And I would, it was the care clinic in Lo- in Nottingham. And I would recommend them to anybody and everybody who, who does need treatment if they're in that area because they were so, just so fantastic with us. But for every appointment that I went to, I wore a necklace that had been bought for me by my friends. It was quite a special necklace to me. One day I went and I, I wore a different necklace and I got some more bad news. And I was like, that's it. It's because I didn't wear the necklace. <laughs> I, just, I wore the wrong thing I know today. it's not. <laughs> yeah. I know it's not that. But in my head at the time, I don't know. I think it probably sends you a bit crazy, doesn't it? The, the emotions that go with it. But I imagine the emotions. Um, I imagine also the hormones as well. Isn't it quite a journey trying to 
ready your eggs to be harvested is that the right word I think yeah yeah it is yeah I I am I feel that I dealt with that side of things very very well now again there's different types of IVF and depending on what you need and why you need it you have a different treatment so with endometriosis they do there's two lots of injections to to go through first before they can harvest the eggs and so the first lot are called down regulating injections and the second lot are called the stimulating injections so with the down regulating injections the, the point of this is the stimulating injections will effectively feed your endometriosis if you have endometriosis and you go straight on to the stimulating injections you're just going to feed that and everything's going to get really angry and flare up really bad so you have to have the down regulating injections first and they essentially strip back yeah strip back all your hormones strip you right back so you're starting at a zero if you like and then you know again depending on personal circumstances and situation when you're ready you'll then get moved on to the stimulating injections which will then are what you need to grow your eggs and everything and and get as many follicles as they can on each ovary to be able to collect those eggs from them in theory by the time they can do that your endometriosis won't be raging like it would be if you'd have just started on them straight away and then the first time we went through that did you obviously got enough eggs or enough we did yeah we um when you're on your stimulating injections or I, I think this is very much the same for everybody but you have to go back to the clinic every other day for blood tests and scans to check because obviously they can tweak things as they go along if they need to more or less of one drug or another and and what have you so going back every other day and I was just coming up to the end of the second week and we went back in and this is when I'd worn the wrong necklace and uh, they found a lump in my uterus but it had grown in the space of three days oh wow and it was about two centimeters in diameter this thing so this is when everything had to get abandoned again for the final time this was I think uh, because I had to then, well, I was ready, uh, just coming up to be ready to have my eggs collected. So we had to carry on and continue and collect my eggs. Otherwise, it would all, all have been for nothing. That's so one and only chance. On. Yeah. So they carried on, collected all my eggs. I think they got 18 from the follicles. They got 18 eggs. And the numbers dropped quite dramatically. So once they collect them, you can generally go home the same day. And they'll ring you sort of every day then because they fertilize them as they collect them and um, we had ICSI IVF as well which is where they normally they'll take one egg and mix it in a in a dish with about 150,000 sperm and the, that egg will naturally fertilize that wasn't happening for us so they take ICSI is where they take a single egg and a single sperm and inject it into the egg to force it to fertilize so they ring you every day with your updates of this is how many you embryos you've got this is what grade they are this is what quality they are and how they're growing and things like that that must Um, be quite a strange process because you're talking about your future baby but it it's quite removed isn't it it's taking like a single egg and sperm and your grades and yeah yeah even listening to it like oh my god this is going to be your future daughter (laughs) yeah it's it's very strange and the first phone call I got I wasn't prepared for how much information they were going to share with me and when I got off the phone I wasn't very well after having my eggs collected. But when you have your eggs collected out of the follicles, they drain the fluid out of the follicles and then that's it. However, sometimes um, women can get something called OHSS, which is 
or I can't remember what it stands for. Um, but basically where all of those follicles that your eggs were in will just fill back up with blood straight away it can get quite poorly. And so then you have to go on medication for a couple of weeks for that and just sort of bed rest, drink lots of water and what have you. Otherwise, you're going to end up being admitted to hospital, which is just one thing I didn't want because I was so sick of the sight of the places. <laughs> I've had enough. They ring you every day. So they rang me the next day, told me all of this information. And then I sort of put the phone down, rang my partner straight away, who'd gone back to work at the time. And I was trying to pass on what they'd said. And I just couldn't remember because there was so much to remember. So from then on, I always had a pen and paper with me for when I answered the phone to them. So that's my tip when they're giving you all your Be ready. <laughs> stats and stuff. Yeah, have a pen and paper ready. So we had 18 eggs yes and they successfully made nine embryos so the next day 24 hours later there were nine surviving embryos and then the day after that there were six and then there were six embryos of they sort of switched around in terms of grades and quality and which was the best one daily really up until the end now they like to transfer your embryo back into you at day five or day six depending on the quality of it but because I wasn't very well they weren't going to be able to do that anyway I then needed to go and have this surgery to have this lump removed because they can't transfer an embryo back into your uterus if there's a big lump there already so it was known from the start that my uh, embryos were going to have to be frozen so I was prepared for that 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 didn't bother me quite so much that was fine but we had sort of six good embryos up until the end up until the last day and then on the very last day they rang us and said okay we've got one that's any good basically there were three others two had died uh died off um there were three others that were okay but they weren't great and ordinarily on a certain grade they they yeah they wouldn't have saved them but they said we've got one which we will freeze and they said we are going to try and freeze the other three um just because they they said essentially they wouldn't have normally because the quality of them wasn't particularly good enough. But because we only had one other one, they said they might as well try. They said, we can't guarantee that they will survive the freezing process, but we'll see. So they did, and they did survive the freezing process. Now, those other three are all still frozen. And I have actually, last month, just started to pay for them because they will keep them frozen for you for three years as part of your NHS funded cycle. And once those three years are up, if you still want to keep That's them, amazing. you have to pay for them to stay frozen so you've got potential babies waiting to meet you (laughs) yeah which is also a really weird thought isn't it because they're in a weird kind of way they're foxes twins triplets whatever they would be because they're all conceived at the same time which i guess is the definition of a twin or a triplet or whatever isn't it i've never understood this and then a friend of mine who's in a same-sex relationship she went through ivf and she said that she was like it's actually like their twin and i was like what and i was like no that is exactly what it is it's their twin born years later it's strange yeah it's so strange isn't it it's it's a really weird kind of thought and obviously we don't know the sex of them or anything like that and and we can't know we're not bothered we could but, have um, another fox <laughs> yeah i know it's ever it's ever so strange it's really a, a really strange one to get your head around sometimes i still think it's weird to think about mm. that way so they are still frozen and we've kept them frozen and then i just find it really strange that the three years are up already from from when that was so yeah then i had to go i had to go back on the waiting list for my normal hospital to go and have this lump removed so that was another few months of just waiting um had that done and then i was kind of finally in a position where we could have the embryo transfer done your body has to be on certain medications for that as well to make sure that your body doesn't 
reject the embryo and had our embryo transfer done and then it was the the dreaded two-week wait Mm. (laughs) as they call it of waiting until you can do your test but I mean we're very we're very lucky because obviously that was the point that we got a positive test and and that's it everything sort of changed from then on I guess and do you think at that point because you started the process at 26 but now you would have been what is it 31 do you think you'd sort of caught up in a way to be in a place where you're like oh let's have a baby yeah I do yeah we were we were yeah I mean I, I was yeah coming up to 31 my partner was 39 at the time so yeah we were older and more prepared and it it almost just felt normal anyway because we'd just been going through this for so long we were just so ready and if it hadn't have happened then you know we'd have just been absolutely devastated because it was so long in the making I think and I can only imagine the emotional roller coaster throughout it all especially at that point in time where you've got your eggs and they're ready to go and then your body needs some more surgery that's hard yeah it is really hard actually and I don't think I knew anybody in real life if you like that had been through IVF before and I actually found a lot of support online and actually through Instagram as well and through other mums dealing with the same thing who were maybe only just starting or had been doing it for years or there's a whole range you know a whole rainbow of experience and knowledge as well which is sometimes good just to speak to someone who knows what you're talking about and who understands and if they are strangers to yes. you. And sometimes it's um, easier, so isn't it, speaking to strangers about really personal things? I don't know how it works, but it's sort of, it doesn't feel like yeah. it's going to come back to you in some way. It's like, oh, I've got the freedom. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And you can sort of say offload, if yeah. you like, and say what you maybe truly feel, things that you don't think or feel that you can say to other people, or or just because they might not understand, because they don't, they're not in that situation and they haven't, experience those things that you've experienced I don't know and so then when you found out you were pregnant were you what was the have to continue to monitor you through your pregnancy and did you have freedom to plan your birth as you wanted yes and then no to those questions (laughs) (laughs) so I found out I was pregnant we were due we'd had a holiday booked um it was a friend of ours wedding on the Tuesday I did my test a day early on the Monday because I said to them oh they gave us our test day and I said oh no that's my friend's wedding day I said I really don't want to have to do my test on the morning of a wedding and if it's negative I just thought I can't deal with that and then have to go to a wedding and be all happy for everybody when inside um so I actually did my test the day early on the Monday because I just thought at least then either way if it's positive or negative I've just got a day to digest it and deal with that but yeah it was it was positive and then but then um yeah you have to I had to stay on medication for the whole first trimester I had to go in for an early scan at six weeks then stay on my medication for the first trimester and at 12 weeks they do blood tests and things to monitor certain levels of certain hormones from then on when you finish your medication and your drugs and things with them they discharge you from their care and you just go under your normal sort of antenatal care at your normal hospital and midwife and things like that so everything was quite quite good actually I was really concerned mostly concerned about the pain in my back from where my bowel is stuck because I understand all of your organs move to accommodate a baby and I was just thinking what is going to happen if this starts to move and pull and tear but it actually didn't and I'm very very lucky I think and overall I think I really had quite a good pregnancy I look back now and I 
think it was absolutely fine. We had a few hiccups at the end, towards the end, from 34 weeks, or somewhere between 32 and 40, 34 weeks. Fox stopped growing, but she was okay. I had to go back for growth scans quite regularly every couple of weeks and scans to the Doppler things where they check your placenta and check the blood flow and things because they wanted to check that my placenta wasn't aging or calcifying or what have you but it was fine she was fine it was fine there didn't appear to be anything wrong other than she just wasn't really growing anymore so I think I kind of attribute it to being a bit like a goldfish who's yeah. reached its capacity <laughs> in its bowl <laughs> I can't possibly get any bigger <laughs> so saying that I, d- I had to have a cesarean because because of the bowel being stuck to the muscle wall in my back and pushing. They were concerned about that tearing if my bowel tore, you know, mid labour. Oh, yeah, what would happen? Like it would be just a complete disaster. So to avoid that, I just I had to have a section anyway. But it was fine. I was prepared for it. It was nice because I knew when it was happening and it was all very calm and my bags were packed and there wasn't any of the panic of oh my goodness I've just got into labour and yeah I think my body was getting ready to have her anyway we had Fox at 39 and 3 so she was pretty on time born on a Monday and the Monday before I'd ended up at the assessment centre because I'd gone into slow labour my cervix had gone soft and what have you but I was okay and they just said, we'll sort of monitor you for the next week, keep an eye on her movements and keep things like that. Obviously come back straight away, yeah. should anything. It was all fine, actually. We did have a, a bowel surgeon there for my cesarean as well, again, as a just-in-case um, precautionary thing. But it all went really well. It went, it went to plan. It was absolutely fine. I completely underestimated the recovery from a cesarean section. I just had no idea how hard that would be. And I felt... I was thinking I had all these operations before yeah exactly and I was thinking that's fine god I've had my stomach cut open for the last 10 years this is this will be nothing it'll just be the same old but no it's really not it's horrendous um I wouldn't recommend it for anyone I I haven't had a natural birth so I have nothing to compare it to I actually really found it well it is amazing painful I didn't realize until I was pregnant with Ava it's not that you just cut open that you have layers upon layers that they have to break through and then they like sew them all up individually don't they and so you have this one scar but it's so deep and I I guess they can't really give you high like intensive pain medication because you've just had a baby and you might be breastfeeding or I don't know I imagine I think I've heard people say they go home and they can have some paracetamol and I'm like oh goodness me yeah, I know <laughs> it is tough it is tough I found it hard but once I'd sort of got over that it was okay it was it was all right but then my next hurdle and this is the final hurdle was breastfeeding um, it's a big one yeah it was it was just completely normal and natural to me my mum had breastfed my sister uh, had a baby eight months before me my younger sister and she was breastfeeding and I'd been around breastfeeding my whole life and to me that was just what you do. So I wanted to breastfeed. I'm aware I was aware of the benefits of breastfeeding, no way near to what the to the extent that I am aware of them now. The breastfeeding class in my area while I was pregnant wasn't actually running due to a, a staff shortage and the NCT class they were so full. The one I could have got onto ended five weeks after Fox was due to be born. So there's absolutely no point no. in starting it. So I will have had to have fed my <laughs> so baby I didn't by actually... then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I didn't actually end up starting anything. 
or doing any classes really naively just kind of thought well what is it you know you just put the baby on the baby boob and do. Yeah. I, my experience was <clears throat> when fox was born i thought you know she latched perfectly i'm very lucky in that she was great at latching no problems there whatsoever thankfully or that would have just been something else <laughs> to deal with yeah but when i'd gone in to have fox i had an infection so i was put on um antibiotics through a drip straight away anyway and that i don't think helped because i started feeding her and by the end of the second day i was in hospital for three days by the end of the second day i was so incredibly sore every every midwife that i said that i saw was sort of like oh this is totally normal everybody gets mm. sore to begin with Just Just keep going <laughs> you'll get past it you know put this put this cream on you'll be fine and it was absolutely wasn't working. So I moved on to nipple shields by the end of the second day, because if I hadn't, I just wouldn't have been able to continue. And, and it just sort of scale, you know, spiraled from there, really. By the time we were allowed to go home, I was, this is something for, that goes towards mother's instinct, I think, but I was convinced there was something wasn't quite right with Fox's feeding or her breathing. And I was just sort of dismissed as a bit of a neurotic mother. You're That's how I felt anyway. Now yeah exactly and they kept the the midwives kept coming over and swaddling her and lying her down on her back and she would do this really funny breathing thing and I know all babies are supposed to be put on their backs but I just couldn't leave her had to pick her up it was like she was struggling to breathe and I'd pick her up and I would just hold her the entire time I think I held her for three days straight I very rarely put her down didn't let anybody else hold her or anything my baby Yeah, but she just wasn't right. And she kept bringing up loads of fluid, which is completely normal for a cesarean baby because in a natural birth, that normally gets squeezed out. Yeah, and so obviously that hadn't happened. So she kept bringing up quite a bit of fluid as well. But by the third day, we were due to go home. And by sort of half 10 in the morning, I called over a student midwife because she'd only had one wet nappy since about six o'clock the night before. And I know that's not normal. The one thing you do hear a lot about is babies having lots of wet nappies and she hadn't and the student midwife sort of said oh yeah that's a bit funny I'll go and speak to someone else and so she went and got another midwife who came over and was like oh it'll be fine she'll do another wee before you go but anyway we were discharged either way then the next day was the day the uh, midwife comes to visit you at home weighs the baby she'd lost a bit of weight that's fine she's breastfed carry on we'll pop back in another couple of days she came back again another couple of days later and I was saying she's making a funny noise when she's breathing and uh, she sort of listened to her and was like oh babies all they make all sorts of little funny coughs and wheezes and coos and all you know it's just they're all a bit snuffly and I thought right okay Um, my mum had come to stay for the week as well and my my mum was a bit unsure and a bit like I don't think that's quite right but she was okay she was breathing okay you know she was breathing it got to day seven and the midwife was due to come round and she was making a really funny noise every time she took a breath in. And my mum was like, this isn't right, Emily. She's like, ring that midwife now. And I was like, she's coming round in a couple of hours, mum, just wait. And mum was like, no, just ring her now, please. So we rang the midwife and she said she'd come round there and then because she'd had some appointments moved round. So she did. And then she rang the paediatrics and we had to go into hospital and we were admitted. Fox had lost... 12.8% of her birth weight and dropped down to £5.9 and she was struggling with her breathing and at this point I just thought see I told again, you again yeah and it's, it's you know I was so 
mad. I suddenly felt this lioness rage, I think, like my mum had done with me previously because I was now looking after this tiny little thing and I just knew something wasn't quite right with her. Anyway, she she's fine. She is fine now, but it turns out she had a floppy larynx or a laryngomalacia or something. I'm not sure if I've pronounced that correctly, but basically a floppy larynx whereby the cartilage in her throat wasn't formed properly. So it wasn't strong and it doesn't hold their throat or their airways open. So you lie them down on their back and their throat kind of collapses in on itself and rattles and everything else and makes a funny noise when they try and breathe in because it's more difficult for them to get air in. So then I was like, I knew this wasn't right. So I hadn't, as it happens, I hadn't been putting her down to sleep on her back because every time I put her down on her back, it sounded so bad. I just couldn't. So I was propping her onto her side or just holding her the entire time while she was asleep. And maybe thank goodness that you did. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it turns out it's actually quite common, more common in premature babies. Now, Fox wasn't premature, but she had stopped growing at 34 weeks. So they don't, they they can't, they don't know for sure, but they've associated it with that, with her, her growth just having stopped maybe prematurely, even though she was fine. So there was that. But in the meantime, she wasn't feeding from me properly. She had a fantastic latch, but because of this floppy throat problem, she didn't really, she didn't have the strength to be sucking properly. So she lost so much weight because she was starving. You know, she was really lethargic and really sleepy and I would be trying to wake her for feeds. And it was awful, actually, because then just the most horrendous mum guilt set in. And I had had this doctor come round and he was like, right, well, we'll put her on formula now. And I just thought, no, well, no, that's not the answer. The answer is I want to breastfeed. It's helping me and her be able to breastfeed was the right answer. Yes, I understood we were going to have to give her formula there and then and for a while because she needed it. And that was a survival thing. Um, So that was fine. Yeah, but I didn't want it to be the end. No. So I had a nurse come round who said, oh, I know a lady who works in the neonatal unit. She breastfeeds her daughter. I'll get her to come and speak to you. So this nurse then came and spoke to me as she was finishing her shift. She came in and saw me. So she wasn't even on duty. And she was sat with me very much mum to mum rather than nurse to mum. And she was actually fantastic. Well, she helped me and advised and explained these things to me about putting Fox out, doing a feeding plan. So we would feed every three hours and more in between if Fox wanted to feed more, allow her to. Um, but feed every three hours. And I was feeding her on one side, pumping on the other at the same time for 25 minutes and then feeding her whatever I'd been able to pump, which at the time was like 10 mil. It was nothing because my supply had just completely diminished because she wasn't feeding properly from me for that week. My body had obviously up. had a baby. Yeah, started to make milk, and then must have thought, oh, she's not using this milk we're making. We'll stop making it. And that is it symbiotic? (laughs) Is that the right word? The relationship between the baby and you and your boob is crazy. It's like magical. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. You, it's a you'll produce milk on a supply and demand basis. So if you're using it, you'll continue making it. If you're not using it, your body will stop making it. So my body must have thought that we just weren't using it. So it was just completely stopping making it. So 
it was exhausting but it worked and I could see my supply building my supply was coming up and it came up to the point where eventually we could just drop the formula and she was feeding and then being topped up with express milk and then obviously we got to a stage where she would feed on one side feed on the other side and she didn't need topping up with anything she was gaining weight and she was fine and she was stronger she was getting older and bigger and in the meantime other things were going on so I was still in absolute agony so much pain in my nipples and I knew it wasn't normal now this wasn't oh you're just new to breastfeeding pain this was horrendous and I went back to the doctors 10 times in the first six weeks and didn't really get very far I ended up I I sort of googled and found my own problem if you like I went to the doctors and said I think Potentially, I, I think I've got say, I think you have thrush because I had it as well. And how you described oh. the pain in your back with that white hot stabbing, I was like, oh my god, the only thing I can think yeah. of that was so bad was when I had nipple thrush. I had never even heard of it. Yeah, I would be crying while I was trying to feed Ava, and the doctors were useless. Yeah, for me, for me. <laughs> yeah. Clenching, clenching your teeth, yeah. curling your toes. Smacking my foot on the floor, counting, holding your breath. Like, Has she had enough? Please get off. Yeah. Yeah, horrendous, isn't it? It's so, I would rather, I'd probably, I think I'd rather have another C section. I would, have I would gladly go through like a two day labor <laughs> rather than have this rush. <laughs> it's so bad. Do you know what the shocking thing is, though? Is it's so simple to treat. And I think for me, by the time I really worked out what it was, it was it took so long to fix it because it had had such a long time yeah. to I don't know fester. Yeah. Oh, that sounds terrible, but yeah, deep. It turns into deep tissue yeah. and it goes all the way up into your back. Like it's yeah. If there's anything yeah. I can say is it's exactly. try not to get it. I don't know if it's possible, but try not to get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is if you do get it and you know and you're and the thing, yeah. if the gps know what away. it is and know how to treat it you can cure you can get rid of those first symptoms in two to four days with a i would say a full treatment course for about two weeks but within two to four days mm-hmm. it should feel better but it's because they don't get it that quickly or we don't know what it is they don't know what it is because it's it's just one of these this is where the whole of knowledge is the black hole of knowledge of things that people don't know but they should my nipples were so damaged at this point I was seven weeks in and I'd had a thrush basically constantly for seven weeks you know and not helped by the fact that I was having to pump every three hours around the clock which obviously isn't the nicest feeling either You're sort of so, a week later though I had I had started to feel better but my nipples were still so damaged and the other, the final thing um, that I had was uh, this had started before I'd even had Fox. Um, while we were going out on dog walks and things like that in the evening and I'd get cold, my nipples were, I could feel them in my clothes going really erect, like, and it was really painful. And I'd mentioned that to my midwife on appointments while I was pregnant. I'd mentioned it to two different midwives. And they both said, oh, yeah, you, you know, you'll get really sensitive. It's all your hormones and your pregnant your nipples can become really sensitive. And that was about it. But as it happened, I actually have Raynards in my nipples, which I didn't even know was a thing. I'd never heard of it before. Didn't know what it was, but it wasn't helped. 
obviously by the thrush and the infections and everything else that was going on. And again, it's actually something that can be quite simple to treat with heat therapy. There are tablets you can take for it, which are essentially blood pressure tablets, but they just open up the blood vessels and the capillaries leading to your nipples in your breast to allow better blood flow. And things like olive oil and really, really simple things, um, which is, I think the thrush is just so simple. It's a tube of cream. And if you get it and you start using it before it gets really bad and before it gets painful, it can be cleared up, you know, and these things don't have to get as bad as they get. As long as we just have people who have the right knowledge or if we have the right knowledge, if they're not going to have it, then we need to at least have it. And mothers need to have access to it instead of it taking seven weeks and 10 Google pages deep and to find what you're deals. looking for. And I think as well, doctors don't yeah. seem to be willing to just say, I'm not sure. Like, I feel like my doctor should have been, or even my yes. health visitor, I was told like, it's the same thing. You know, you just have to get used to it. It'll hurt at the start. And I ended up being diagnosed because I went to yeah. see a lactation consultant. And I remember calling her probably about yeah. 10 o'clock at night in tears. And my appointment was on the Monday and this is Friday yeah and I was like I can't actually get through this weekend and I told her over the phone my symptoms and she was like you have thrush and I was like what and it like her who understood it it was so simple to diagnose and that weekend was the best weekend Ava and I had had in a long time (laughs) yeah see that's it it's just that and all of these things have sort of led me to where I am today I think I've become so passionate about breastfeeding and not even just so much babies being breastfed but the mothers and helping mothers be able to do what they want to do and do it successfully and do it pain-free problem-free to me Um, becoming a doula it's a bit separate from the babies it's about empowering the women and the mum and the the people going through that process and supporting them with all the information they need to have a positive experience yeah and just be fully informed and so they have that knowledge and I've just embarked on I say embarked on I'm just starting a breastfeeding counsellor course but it'll take me just over two years and then I will be a fully qualified and accredited breastfeeding counsellor and I've seen as well should I ask where can people find you if they want to connect with you um on Instagram what's your handle it is at my underscore wild underscore fox because my name was well my Instagram page was mostly about motherhood and having a baby and having fox before it became about breastfeeding so whether I should change that or not I don't know (laughs) but it's 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 about me and fox and our life and things like that mainly and boobs as well I've seen you do (laughs) that milk Mondays is that what you're calling it yeah we've got the hashtag mama's milk Monday so every Monday I'll do a QA. and a well, people can contact me anytime, and they do. But every Monday, I'll do a Q&A. So I put a question box up and just for people to ask absolutely anything, anything they want about breastfeeding, you know, be it about weaning or anything, medical, whatever. You know, pregnant ladies will ask me questions. What do I need in advance? I want to breastfeed. I've never done it before. Just anything. Yeah, there's lots, lots of things. Lots of <laughs> I have lots of quite strong opinions about breastfeeding. Uh, well, but... thank you so much for sharing your story, Emily. There's lots there that I think. I mean, just talking to you, you're a wealth of information about lots of different processes of womanhood and motherhood and pregnancy. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry. I've no, I found on for it so, so long. interesting. <laughs> 
Thanks for tuning in today. If you'd like to connect, you'll find me on Instagram. My handle is born underscore underscore together. Also head to the website borntogether.co.uk for pictures, links and more from today's episode. I'll be recording again in a few weeks. Please get in touch if you'd like to share your story. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love if you could subscribe, share and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking forward to next time.